Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And if you've been tracking with us at this point, you're a little bit perplexed because we ought to be turning to Acts, you say, in your heart. But we're taking a a break from our Acts series um, as we approach Easter. Uh, Traditionally, uh, many churches have spent 40 days before Easter uh, preparing their hearts to worship. And that 40-day pause is referred to as Lent. Lent. Lent is a time to fast and to prepare to worship God in this uh, special time of year, in the same way that we observe Advent. So if you're trying to put a category in your brain for this, Advent is a time for us to get ready for Christmas and try to zone out some of those distractions and just to delight in the incarnation, God with us. Well, Lent is a time to similarly just kind of push away the distractions and prepare our hearts to worship through Good Friday and Easter in that holy week. I want to say a couple things very clearly off the top. First of all, please hear this. Lent is not in the Bible. It's not commanded. So if you're here and you'd say, well, I I don't actually, I don't love this practice. I don't want to fast anything. Actually, I didn't touch on the fasting. So um, one of the things that's observed during Lent is that over this 40 days, uh, people will maybe choose something that they will fast from. And that's uh, really just to, again, prepare your hearts for Easter. So, for example, you might fast a, a meal. So I'm not going to have breakfast through Lent. Or you might fast a food, like I won't have sugar. Or, um, or for me, like it, I'm going to fast from social media. And the idea of fasting is not to earn God's love or anything like that. But it's that when you feel that hunger pang, you know, when I feel that impulse to say, I'm going to go look at my phone, instead I, it reminds me that, no, actually I need you more than I need this. And it turns me to prayer. And so that's the idea behind fasting, and that's what people are doing over the next 40 days. But again, let me say so clearly, you don't have to. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, that seems a little bit legalistic, that's fine. You don't need to do it. There's no verse in the Bible that says you need to do this. If you choose not to do this, you're not any more or less of a Christian than the person sitting next to you. So everybody hears that? Really good. I suspect I'll get an email anyways. That's fine. I just want to be clear. We recognize it's not commanded. And so now you might be asking the question, well, then what are we doing? Because now you had to waste two minutes qualifying that. We're taking a six-week break from our series. You, you've opened yourself up for a couple emails. What, why even bother? Good question. And uh, actually, I was pondering that for the last few months. I just thought, is this worth doing at all? I landed on the fact that I think that this will be helpful for us this year. Though maybe we won't do it next year, because again, we don't have to. But I think it would be helpful. Because, boy, Easter really sneaks up on us. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while I find myself in Holy Week and you show up and it's Good Friday. And, and you just find yourself looking around saying, it's Good Friday. We're, here we are. We're gathered in this place. We're about to partake of communion. And boy, there is an emotional bandwidth that is required of us. And I would say that Holy Week deserves, that just doesn't come naturally, the, the depth of Good Friday, the sobriety, that, you know, that, that feeling of just, being aware of the holiness of God and the depravity of sin, it brings you just right to the depths if you're dealing honestly with it. And then two days later, it, it's Easter Sunday, and there is a joy and a, a, rejo- a delighting, a hands-raised, clapping, just shouting joy that that day deserves. And there's nobody in this room who, who really possesses that whole emotional bandwidth. It just doesn't come naturally to us. So for some of us, that the depth of Friday is a stretch. For some of us, the joy of Easter is a stretch. But all of us would be well served to prepare our hearts. And, and just to step back and say, God, I, I need to see you. You know, how do we prepare ourselves for a supernatural bandwidth? We behold our God. 
And so for the next six weeks, we're going to just slowly work our way through the Gospel of Luke, in particular the, this last stage of Jesus' life. Today we're picking up in a text that brings us to Maundy Thursday, which is the day right before Good Friday. And we're just going to work through the text and, and see Jesus and walk with him and see what is he pointing out in these final days. What, what are we meant to see? So that, that's the approach. Some of you are going to find this very helpful and some of you won't. And I apologize for those of you who won't. Uh, and we'll reassess next year. But uh, I can tell you, for me, I need this. So selfishly, here we are. Uh, I think this will be helpful. Uh, I, I want to invite you to look with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. We're going to read from verses 7 to 23. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment and ask the Lord for his help. Gracious God, this is your word, and we are here to hear from you. And I pray that you would prepare us now, prepare our hearts and our minds and our ears to feel, to understand, to hear what we are meant to hear. Lord, I pray that you would help me. Uh, Lord, I confess that I feel very much like the boy with the loaves and the fish today. And uh, I'm that boy every day. Lord, I'm offering up what I have, and I pray that you take my efforts and just make more of them than is humanly possible and feed your people and strengthen us and encourage us today. And Lord, I pray that in faith because you promise that your word goes forth and never returns void. And you tell us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So we come with great confidence and we come with great need today. Lord, so meet us and speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in this passage, we find the institution of what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And if you're here, maybe in your tradition, they don't refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Maybe they refer to it as the Eucharist. It's the same thing. It's just a different title that really emphasizes the Thanksgiving aspect of communion. Communion's the third name. That perhaps you're here and in, in your church they always refer to it as communion. Again, same meal, just emphasizing now the unity that we have that's been purchased through Christ. 
But communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, we're talking about the same thing. And right here, Jesus is instituting this feast. And um, before we jump into it, I just want to make sure that you see, we're not going to say an awful lot about the, this detail, but it's interesting. You know, Jesus tells the disciples to go into the city, and he's like, you know, you're going to go, and you're going to find a man carrying a stone jar. And perhaps it's just the nature of preaching on a text, but it was the first time I really stopped to think about that detail. It's just, it, it's weird. Jesus sends them ahead, and you're going to find a man with a stone jar. Well, apparently, as you looked into the history, men didn't carry the stone jars. The women did. Um, and so they're going to find some man, and he's going to, it's going to be a little distinct. You're going to notice this man, um, but it's not so distinct that everyone's going to draw their attention to you because at this time, everybody's looking for Jesus, right? So Jesus knows he's about to be arrested, so he's got to be a bit uh, covert. So he says, you'll find this man, and you'll follow him into a house, and then you'll talk to the master of the house, and He'll show you the room that he's prepared. And, and it almost sounds like, like the intro to a spy movie. It's just interesting. And the takeaway, you know, why is this recorded? I think the takeaway is just to really emphasize that Jesus is setting the table for this meal. This isn't happenstance. It's, it didn't, it's not like it just so happens that this happens to be the meal that they had on the night that Jesus would be betrayed. No. Jesus has put all of these details in place. Jesus has been very careful to ensure that this meal happens on his terms. Why? Because there's something here that we need to see. Something here that Jesus wants to draw our attention to. Immediately after the meal, he's going he's to go out into the garden with, with no spy preparations. He's going to be betrayed there. He's going to be handed over there. So Jesus immediately is going to drop his guard and step right into the trap. But in this moment, he says, no, I know you're setting a trap. You're not going to stop this. We're sharing this meal. The question is, what are we meant to see then in the first Lord's Supper? So I want to pull out four things that we need to see here. The first and most significantly, here we see the gospel made visible. The gospel made visible. So let me draw your attention to the, the circumstances surrounding this first meal. Luke is very careful to draw our attention to the time of this meal. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, and he goes on to clarify, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, what? Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So this supper is initially, you know, before he turns it into the Lord's Supper, they are celebrating the Passover. That's what's happening in this story. And Jesus is intentionally picking up this Old Testament feast. And what he's doing is he's injecting it, infusing it with this gospel significance. Okay, he's, he's taking it and transforming this into something new and glorious. But for us to appreciate what's happening, we do need to take a moment to understand what it is that he's picking up. So let's talk about the Passover. What is it? The Passover was an annual meal that the Jews celebrated to commemorate their deliverance out of Egypt. That was the historical moment of God's powerful rescue of his people. We've been singing a song lately, um, and the one line, I've heard a number of you reference it, says, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. And a, a number of you have kind of reached out and said, you find great comfort in that line. I don't know what God's doing in this mess right now, but I know what he's done, and so I know I can trust him. Well, if you were a Jew singing that song, your mind, when you say, I know what he's done, your mind would be going back to this glorious moment when God led his people out of Egypt broke the bondage of slavery that they were living under. And this meal was made to ensure that they would never forget that deliverance. That was the purpose of the Passover. It was the freedom feast. It was the deliverance party. 
And at the center of the Passover meal was a lamb. And that's what Luke draws our attention to in verse 7. The lamb. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, you know that God sent ten plagues on Egypt to deliver his people. And on the tenth plague, this, this tragic day, God sent the angel of death out over the Egyptians to kill the firstborn son of each home. And the only homes that were spared were the homes of those who had killed this lamb. God told his people, he said, you're going to find a spotless lamb. You're going to kill the lamb and take that blood and you're going to put the blood of that lamb on your doorposts. And when the angel of death comes to judge the wickedness of these people, if he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of a house, he's going to pass over. Right? And so on this day, when they're celebrating deliverance, they're simultaneously remembering that that deliverance came at a cost. And so they kill the Passover lamb. Jesus here is taking this ceremony, taking this deliverance feast that has a memorial of the cost, the price that was paid, and he's, he's taking it and showing that it is a neon sign that is pointing to him. And so look at what he does here in verses 19 and 20. It says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus takes the, the freedom feast, and he says, This freedom feast, actually now, it's, this is going to be commandeered, and it's going to be used to remind you of the true freedom that I am purchasing for you. And you're going to remember my body, which is broken for you, and my blood, which is shed for you. And we're going to have more to say about that, but we need to recognize that piece. That's one of the reasons why we come back to the Lord's Supper again and again. I would argue it's the primary reason. It's what Jesus highlights here. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what do we do with this phrase, this is my body, which is broken for you? Does he mean that, that every time we take the bread and we break it, that this is Jesus' literal body that is breaking and that we're putting his literal body into our mouth? Some folks have, have seen that in the text, but we would, we would reject that understanding of the text. That would be to re-sacrifice Jesus again and again, and his one sacrifice was atoning. His one sacrifice was enough. So we don't see that. What we see here is this illustrative language, the same kind of illustrative language that Jesus used when he said, I am the door. Right? He's not actually a door, but he is the door through which we must go if we would have eternal life. John the Baptist uses this illustrative language when he pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not a, a literal lamb. The bread doesn't become his literal body. No. But I, I will say that sometimes we, in our, our side of, of evangelicalism, we can sometimes go too far. Uh, almost, you know, so that we avoid going into that error, sometimes we can just rob all of the significance of the Lord's Supper and, and treat it as if it is just like a, merely a, remor- a memorial. You know, like, let's just take a moment to think about Jesus. And, I, and there's more to it than that. And I say that because in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul Paul is showing us here that, yes, we're remembering. Yes, it's, it's got a memorial purpose, but there's also something more. We're participating today as we come to the Lord's Supper. We're partaking 
So to jump back to the Passover language, remember the, the Israelites, they, they would slay the Passover lamb, and, but who were the ones who were saved from the angel of death? It was only those who then took that blood and physically applied it to the doorposts of their house. Well, in the same way, the blood of Jesus Christ, how does, how does he save us? Well, it only saves those who have, by faith, spiritually applied it to the doorposts of their heart. We do this by confessing our sins and placing our trust in Jesus. And now we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, it is as if we're, we're partaking of that again. You know, we're, we're physically, tangibly placing our trust, laying hold of this, partaking in this sacrifice that atones us. Now, some of you are here today and you're visiting, and this is feeling a bit weird. And that's fair. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a bit of a strange day for guests because this is something that we do that is admittedly and unashamedly a bit strange. We are celebrating the death of Jesus. Now that's, if you don't believe that his death is your life, if you don't believe that the, the price that he paid was the sacrifice that sets you free from slavery to sin and death, if you don't believe that, then you should not celebrate the death of this man who lived 2,000 years ago. That would be weird. That would be inappropriate. We'd encourage you today, however, just to, to watch. Let it pass you by. Um, Matthew Henry's got this great line. He says, the Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye. So if, if you're visiting with us, if that's you, you're not a Christian, you've not put your trust in Jesus, then I would say, don't take the body and the blood and say, I'm going to join the celebration. You shouldn't celebrate the death of this man unless you see in his death your life. So in the same way that you're not going to pop up right now and, and and preach a sermon, you're just going to sit and listen? Well, when this visible sermon passes you by, just watch and observe and learn. We're really happy you're here. I'm going to move into the second thing now. So first, we see in the Lord's Supper the gospel made visible. Second, we see the inauguration of a new covenant. So look again at verse 20. He says, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here he's shifting from this illustration of Passover now to this language of covenant, which would have made loads of sense to to the disciples, but it's it's harder for us to understand because we don't really talk about covenants today. And if we're going to understand the glory of this new covenant, then we do need to understand something of the old covenant. So let me just briefly share this with you. Uh, Unless you were at a wedding, and even in weddings we don't use this covenantal language very often anymore, the traditional weddings we do, but covenants are just not something we think about. In the, old, in the ancient Near Eastern world, covenants were all over the place. So if you had a smaller tribe and they needed to defend themselves from all of these larger tribes around them, what are they going to do? What they do is they make an agreement with a larger tribe. They make a covenant. And they say to that larger tribe, hey, we're going to, you know, whatever the terms of the agreement, we're going to pay tribute to you every month. And as we hold up to our end of the covenant, you, in turn, are going to fight our enemies for us. If someone comes to fight us, you're going to be there, right? Right. Well, then how do they solidify that covenant? Like when we were kids, sometimes uh, the boys in the room, maybe, maybe the girls, you do the spit shake, you know, if this is like a really serious binding thing, you know, the spit shake and you seal it. Well, in those days, they didn't use the spit shake. What they did was they would seal the covenant, they'd ratify it in blood. And they'd take an animal and they'd cut that animal in half and then lay it out on the ground with the two halves. And this is, again, you can picture a messy ordeal. And then they would walk through the center of these halves in this mess. 
And the mess would be all over their feet and the blood would be on them. And what they were saying in that ratifying of the covenant was, let this awfulness happen to me if I break this covenant that we're making today. So that was the language that people used in that day. That was how they made these agreements. And God speaks to his people through their language. And so in the Old Testament, we see God making a covenant with his people. So for example, we see in Exodus 24, God makes a covenant with his people. After he's brought them out of Egypt, now he's going he's to agree to walk with them and protect them and guard them. He gives his commandments to them and he promises that he's going to bless them as they obey. And they respond in Exodus 24, verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're declaring this as a people. Like, we're accepting the terms of the covenant. We are in. In the next verse, the covenant's ratified in blood. The text says, So Moses took the blood, and he threw it out on the people. So just imagine you're in that service. You say, we're going to do it. We are going to hold up our end of the covenant. And then now Moses starts just whipping blood around the room, right? And that is what's happening. So you're feeling this this on your face, this is a mess, but we're, we're in. We've just made this agreement. We are in this covenant relationship with God. Covenant's established. Problem, the problem, however, is that the people did not obey. And their fathers did not obey, and their children did not obey, and their grandchildren did not obey. None of them obeyed. Nobody lived up to the end of the covenant. The blessing of that old covenant could only be unlocked by perfect obedience, but nobody living under that old covenant was able to do that. So that's a problem. Now this covenant, which should be a blessing, had become a curse. And everybody was living under that curse. That curse that, you know, with the blood on their face, that in Romans it says the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty, because we're covenant breakers. In Romans 8, verse 2, the Apostle Paul refers to the law, which is the you know, the, our terms in the agreement, and he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, the, what's wrong with the law? The law in itself was great, but it became a law of sin and death because we can't do it. So it left us under a curse, the old covenant. Well, now Jesus picks up the cup, and remember that blood? Remember, you remember that blood that was just splashed all around? He, te- he says to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because remember, Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't even just the perfect man. He was the God-man. Jesus is truly God, truly man. He has held up to the, the terms of the agreement. He's obeyed in every way. And now Jesus is saying, here, this cup is the covenant in my blood. My blood is going to be shed so that you could come into a new agreement. Your old agreement, you you need to pay for what you've done under the old agreement. The old agreement says the wages of sin is death. That's what you owe, that's what you owe, that's what I owe. We all owe blood. But Jesus stands up as the God-man and says, but now I'm bringing you into a new covenant because my blood is going to be shed to satisfy that once and for all. And now you're coming into something new. Now there was, God had whispered hints of this new covenant in the Old Testament. You know, so 600-ish years before Jesus was ever born, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God speaks through Jeremiah and says something new is coming. It's not, it's not just 2.0 of the old thing. It is not like the covenant that I made with Moses. It is something new. He speaks through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. And he says, and I'll give you a new heart. Again, speaking of this covenant. In this new covenant, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in this old covenant, and I'll just throw this out there. Some of us are still living as if we're under the old covenant. Some of you are here, you're not even a Christian today, and yet you live your life like you're under the old covenant. Because under the old covenant, you are, you're assessing your standing with God based upon how good you're living. Right? Am I good enough? Am I good enough to have the love of God? Am, am I obedient enough? Am I awesome enough to have the love of God? Under the old covenant, it's, you're trying to live up to, the, and you can't do it. There's a bar that you can't reach, and it's exhausting. And you spend your whole life trying to reach this bar. You can't get there. The only way you can ever console yourself is by looking at the people around you and saying, well, I'm better than him, and I'm better than her. But that's how you become a Pharisee, isn't it? Because when I look at the standard, I know I don't measure up. So I'm going to have to spend my whole life looking at other people. Good thing I'm better than all of them. I'm, I'm better than all of you. What the gospel does is it says, forget all of that. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Look at me. Look at me and recognize that I am enough. That I have lived up to the covenant perfectly. I have obeyed perfectly. I have paid the price that you should pay. You don't measure up, but I have. And I'm inviting you in and I'm giving you this gift for free. And as a Christian, that's what we do. Now we're in this new covenant. And what's happened now is he's given me this new heart. The law was like a fence that was around my life. Trying to keep me from, from moving away from this blessed presence of God problem is I'm a really good fence jumper and so are all of us so we're always jumping the fence looking at the stuff on the other side so what does God do in the new covenant he says it's what you need the fence was good but you just jumped it all the time what you need is a new heart that loves the center a heart that doesn't want to jump the fence anymore a heart that every time you take a a step over the fence just feels I don't belong here and comes back to the other side you need the spirit of God in you and that's what we have if we're in Christ he's filled us with his spirit so that he's changing us from the inside out, so that he's making us new day by day to look like Christ, and none of us is doing that perfectly yet. But that's okay because Jesus has paid the price for our sin, and we have a right standing with God, not because of who we are or what we do, but we have a right standing with God because of who Jesus is and what he did. That's the glory of the new covenant. And people who live in that covenant can rest in the completed work of Christ and can obey God out of gratitude, empowered by the Spirit, changing us from the inside out. And so when you are living in that new covenant, when you're living in that life that Jesus has purchased for you, there's a sweetness to it, even though there's a struggle. <laughs> even though there's an awareness that I'm not yet who I want to be, you're seeing, but God is changing me. He's doing this work. And I know that I'm right with God because of Jesus. And this meal is the reminder of that. I wonder how often we think about that when we come to the Lord's Supper. 
Because sometimes we come to the Lord's Supper, and I try to warn against this each month, but sometimes we come to the Lord's Supper and we ask, how am I doing this week? Do I deserve God's love or do I not? And that's not the question. The question is, am I trusting in Jesus and his completed work? Am I a child of God? And if the answer to that is yes, then you partake and you're nourished by Christ. Does that make sense? So it's, it's the gospel made visible. It's the inauguration of a new covenant. Two more things. We also see the anticipation of a coming kingdom. Now this is the piece that we often miss. As one author explains, the Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to the cross. It also looks forward to the coming of God's kingdom. It looks forward to a time when Jesus himself will feast with his people. Now, we, we naturally and rightfully look back every time we come to the Lord's Supper, look back to the cross. Jesus told us, you know, to remember. So we're coming and we're looking back and we're remembering. But Jesus also told us to look forward. Luke 22, verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's an until in this feast. There's a, there's a do this until. He clarifies further in Matthew's gospel. He says, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as we come to the Lord's Supper each time, Jesus says, you've got an eye back, an eye back to the completed work on the cross, but you also have an eye forward to that day when you are going to share this meal with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That day's coming. Now, at the risk of, of being misunderstood and misquoted, I'm going to say this anyways, carefully. There, there should be a little sliver of dissatisfaction in us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, don't mishear that. We're not dissatisfied with Jesus, not dissatisfied with what he's accomplished for us, not dissatisfied with this new covenant, but we're dissatisfied with the longing, with the awareness that, that we are not yet there. Because it's the, it's the forgiveness feast, right? It's the freedom feast. I'm celebrating that I have this freedom now from sin and death. And yet I look up and I see that I'm surrounded by sin in, in this world. And I look around and I see I'm surrounded by sin in this gymnasium. And I look at my kids, and I'm, there's sin here, and I look at my spouse, and there's sin there, and then I look at the person staring back at me in the mirror, and I see all kinds of sin as I partake of this freedom from sin feast. And there's something in there. There's a, a discord. There's a, a dissonance that we feel. When we sing that song, do you feel the world is broken? We do. We do. I do. And sometimes... Some of you and myself, we come to the Lord's Supper and we feel that and we just wonder like, I'm supposed to be giving thanks and I'm supposed to be excited, but there's also a part of me that just feels so broken and I, does that disqualify me from this? And I would just tell you, no, it doesn't disqualify you from the Lord's Supper. There ought to be a sliver of of that, again, just hear me carefully, uh, there ought to be a sliver of that discontentment because the Lord's Supper is like an appetizer. It's like an appetizer. It's designed to whet your appetite for what's coming. It's not the main course, however. It isn't. That's why he says, do this until I come. Why do you have an appetizer? Just to, 
it, it wets your palate. It, it prepares you in anticipation. I can't wait for the main course, but you don't leave after the appetizer because the appetizer is not quite enough. It's just reminding you that there's something coming that's more. Does that make sense? And so we walk out of here each day after we've partaken of communion. We should walk out of here with a longing for more. It's like, oh Lord, I've had what the world has to offer. I'm just coming to the table. Just, I just need a taste. I need a reminder of what you've accomplished. I need a reminder of what's coming before I go back into this world. I can't wait for the day when this is finally consummated and I'm sitting with you. Can, can I tell you and encourage you? That day is coming. That day is coming. Eat this bread, drink this cup until I come. One day, we're going to share this meal and all of the dissonance will be gone. One day we're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know about you, but every time I try to wrap my mind around this, of course, I just completely fall flat. I grew up at a time, and the, the younger guys aren't going to recognize this, but some of you will. The Philadelphia, back when we had commercials and you watched TV, the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial, right? And the clouds and the harp. And, and I just remember thinking as a kid, I don't want that. And and to this day, still, when I think about heaven, I think about the new heavens, the new earth, I have to fight this cream cheese commercial. I have to say that's not it. It isn't it, right? What, what is it? He's, he's, going to, he's going to judge and put away this old earth, which has been so corrupted by sin, and he is going to create the new heavens and the new earth, which will be like this, but without the corruption of sin. So, when I try to think about what that's going to be like, I just think about everything that I enjoy in a pure way in this world. Anything that you enjoy in a pure way that is not sin, that is not tainted by sin. Now, all of my enjoyment is tainted by sin. That's sad, but it's, you just think about, you know, when you are walking out and you feel the sun on your skin, you're like, oh, this is so amazing, and you laugh with a friend. You know, oh, I love that. Or you, you play a sport, or you listen to music, or you read a book, all of those things that in this world give you like a little foretaste. The joy of physical intimacy, a, a warm hug, every bit of that is like just a little glimpse of what God has made us for. Because whatever he has for us is going to be infinitely better than all of that. Every high you've ever felt, every joy, all of it, times infinity, that's the new heavens, the new earth. It's going to be this Garden of Eden that he's bringing us back into. And so somehow, some way, we're going to sit there so I'm imagining this outdoor dining table and we're sitting in this garden and we're here and we're in our new bodies. The Bible says we're going to have these new bodies that are not corrupted by sin and they're not corrupted by decay. So are these glorified bodies and we won't care much about that because we're going to look up and we're going to see our loved ones who've passed on before us in the faith. And I'm not going to name them because some of you will start crying. But those people that we've, that we've said goodbye to here in this place, they're going to be there at the table with us and they're glorified bodies and now I'm going to look over, and there's Charles Spurgeon, and I'm going to think, I hope he didn't listen to any of my sermons, but I'm just happy that you're here. And, and we're going to be sitting there ready with no dissonance at all. And then will come the moment when the king approaches. And Revelation 19 gives us a little foretaste of this. Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. 
And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This supper, that stale bread and that cup of juice is preparing us for that supper, right? We have a place at this table to remind us that Jesus has made a place for us at that table. So we think about that as we come. And as you, maybe we come today and you feel just discouraged and disillusioned and you're feeling that dissonance in a really acute way today, let that propel you into expectation. Let that, let that just whet your appetite for what God has for us. And I would love to end the sermon right here because that is a sweet note to land on. And in fact, my first draft did end right here. But Luke does not end right here. So we have one final frightening point to make. The Lord's Supper, here in this first Lord's Supper that we see in Luke, it reminds us of the ongoing presence of hypocrisy. This is a difficult note to land on, but it is where Luke lands. So let's look at the final verses of our passage this morning, verses 21 to 23. Jesus has just finished saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. I was struck, not in a nice way, by this reality that even at the first Lord's Supper led by Jesus himself, there was a hypocrite at the table. What's a hypocrite? It comes from the Greek word for an actor, the one who wears a mask, one who plays a part. It's not real. Judas was that hypocrite. If you look back in the text, verses 1 to 6 of, of Luke 22, Judas has just, he's just made the plans to betray Jesus. So he's, already, he's done all the arranging. He set it all up. Here is how I'm going to betray Jesus. And then he comes to this supper and he sits down at the table, reclines at the table, and he shares this meal as Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Judas takes and eats and takes and drinks. And that's treachery. That's, that's betrayal to the nth degree. And it happens countless times as people come to the Lord's Supper. And and that's tragic. And we try to guard against it. You know, we, so you've heard us refer to fencing the table. Uh, fencing the table, and we're going to do it in just a moment, is where we just stand up and, and we just say, just be careful, right? This is the most glorious thing. But if, if you don't believe this and you're not trusting in this and you don't want Jesus as the Lord of your life, this isn't a snack. This isn't snack time. And, I'm, and I say that, but I'm not joking. Like, and I, if you're not here and you don't believe this, it probably looks like snack time. It's like, well, that was good. That was a long sermon, and now we get a little snack refresher. It's not that. And some of you, you know what it is. You've heard what it is. Like Judas, you've heard the warnings, and yet you treat it like it's snack time. Judas came to the supper, and he already had his plan to betray Jesus in place. And sometimes we come to the supper, and maybe you're here today, and you've come to the supper, and you've already got a plan to betray Jesus. You're, you're going to go back 
you're going to go back to that pornography, you know it. You, you've already, you're thinking about it right now, and you're thinking, yeah, no, I'm not going to leave that behind. That affair, you're not shutting it down. He understands me. He, he's a safe place for me. She's a safe place for me. That bitterness, that resentment that you, just, that you keep in your life like a, like a friend, and you know I've got to let this go, but you won't. You just keep it so close, and you indulge in it. You know right now I'm not letting it go. I don't care what Jesus says. You're going to cheat on those taxes. You've been, you've been humming and hawing, but you know. Like, you know what? what the government, it's, not, it's my money. It's not the government's money. They don't need to know. You're wearing the mask. You're going to betray Jesus. And that's what it is. That's what it is. And Jesus says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Apostle Paul warned, and this is, again, I say we fence the table each week. And maybe you wonder, why do we do this? You know, why don't we just tell everybody, like, hey, it's so great that you're here. I can't wait to share this, this table with you. Everybody here should eat. Everybody should drink. Why don't we do that? Because we love people. We love Jesus. We listen to him. Here's what he tells us in his word. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Why do we fence the table? Because we believe this. Discern the body. Don't eat in an unworthy manner. Now, you have to hear that in light of everything that we've said so far. What does it mean to come in an unworthy manner? It doesn't mean to come as a person who falls into sin and falls short because, can I tell you something? That's every one of us in this room. So that's not what it means. What does it mean? It means to come as someone who is is living in sin, who has made peace with sin, who is choosing sin, who hears Jesus saying, that has to go, and is saying, no. And who comes to church and, and puts on the mask, just like Judas, takes the spot at the table, says, nobody knows, it's, there's no harm done, I'm going to do this again. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table. Didn't you just say that Jesus has washed away all of our sin? Didn't you say that we come not on our own merits, but on Christ? Didn't you say that this is the forgiveness feast? Yes, yes, and yes. All of that is true. But we have to hear that also with what the Apostle says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So if you're in Christ, if you've confessed your sin, if you've placed your trust in him, if his blood has been applied to the doorposts of your heart, then you are dead to sin. It doesn't mean you'll never stumble, but it does mean that you won't play the game of wearing the mask. Just a heavy note to land on. Again, it would have been so much better to land on point three. But God has us here. So, just as we sit in this discomfort, maybe there's somebody here today and it's just the mercy of God that has you feeling very uncomfortable right now. As uncomfortable as this feels, I promise you, this that is warned about in 1 Corinthians 10, this Standing before Jesus on that day of judgment, 
and giving an account for all of those times when you said, oh, thanks for breaking your body for me, Jesus. Thanks for shedding your blood. I'm going back to my sin. That will be far more uncomfortable than this. So let me ask, is there a pattern of sin in your life? Is there something that has mastered you? Something that has made you its slave? Something that you are not going to let go of? I would just plead with you this morning to confess it to God. Surrender it to Christ. Trust in his blood that was shed for sinners like you for sins like that and is sufficient to wash it away. But then, as you come to the table, you've got to leave that filth behind you. It has to go. As we lay hold of Christ, we have to let go of these things that we've been bringing with us. He's offering you the greatest gift in the history of the universe. He's inviting you to know him and to love him and to enjoy him forever in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Hear me, the supper is not for perfect people. It's not for deserving people. But it is for the people who, by the grace of God, say, I'm letting go of everything so that I can receive this. So if that's you, I want to encourage you to come to the table today to see the gospel made visible to celebrate this new covenant that's been inaugurated and to anticipate the glory that is to come. And if it's not you, maybe it's not you because you're a guest and you've never believed any of this, let it pass. And maybe you're here today and, and you've, you've been partaking of this Lord's Supper for the last years and years, but today you're just saying, I'm the one wearing a mask. I don't, I don't want Jesus. I want my sin. Just let it pass uh, as we come by. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in a moment. Let me just pray that God would land this how it needs to land. Heavenly Father, I hmm, just pray for your help that we would hear this rightly. And I confess that I am, I am a man who can't deliver things perfectly. Uh, you know that. I'm just mind, mindful of that right now. Um, never once perfectly resembled Jesus in my living and never once perfectly resembled Jesus in my preaching. And I just want this to land the way that Christ would have it land. So I pray that you would apply comfort where it needs to be applied and conviction where it needs to be applied and that you would help all of us to see you. Um, so I pray that you would speak a better sermon than I could ever speak and that you would just press your truth deep into our hearts. And God, I pray that even though we've landed on a sobering note, that, Lord, we would come to the table with great joy. Thank you. Thank you for all of those things that we were celebrating. I won't rehash them now, God. You know, I pray that, that you would just press those things on our heart as we partake, that we would know that we are forgiven and loved filled with the Spirit of God, blessed with a new heart because of what Jesus has done. We who could never earn this have received this. And so we're imperfect people, God, but we come to you and we see your perfect plan and we're, just, we're laying hold with gratitude. Lord, if there's anything that would keep us from laying hold, Lord, anything that we've been deceived into thinking is better, I pray that you would just show us today, God, there's nothing better than you like the man who sold the field, so he sold everything he had so he could buy the field and, and, and take hold of the pearl of greatest price. Lord we, Lord, we want that. So help us now. Lord, help us even as we respond in this song. Prepare our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?